Hey, this is Alice. I'm the co-host of the podcast you're about to enjoy. This is just a note to let you know that Jim and I had several podcasts all ready to go and start dropping, and then the events of the past several weeks struck us as something that we had to talk about. So at the end of the podcast today, you'll hear a discussion that Jim and I recorded just a couple of days ago, talking about everything that's happened in the Civ Mill world. I should also let you know that Jim and I are both affiliated with the U.S. Army, but nothing we say is the position of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. They're all our own views and thoughts. Okay, here's the show. That if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Today on the show, Jim and I take the helm as the new hosts of the podcast. We'll introduce ourselves and talk about how we see the state of civil military relations today. Then we'll take you through a lightning round of the new segments we're introducing to the show. We'll close with some sneak previews of the guests we'll be talking to in the coming months and our ideas for getting you involved in the show. All right, let's get started. Jim. Alice. I'm so excited about this. I know I am too. I've been thrilled. We've been gearing up for this and talking about this for months, and we've been recording for a little while now. I can't wait to get started. Me neither. So today we wanted to have a chat, just you and I, about how we see the state of civil military relations, including how it is being studied and practiced. We both do academic work on civil relations, but we have also lived it. So I wanted to ask you if there was anything you experienced in your professional life that made you want to study civil academically. Well, for me, it came down to two things. First, I had a great teacher for my civil military relations class when I was at West Point, a guy named Don Snyder. He's a giant in the field, but he's also a wonderful man, and he inspired a deep interest in me early on. Second, my experiences on deployments to Iraq, killing, losing friends, interacting with Iraqis at a human level, doing some things I found really exciting and profound, and implementing policies I sometimes question made me doubt some of my beliefs about the nature of the relationship between the military and our government. And coming home from war forced me to reflect on how I did and should interact with other Americans. What about you, Alice? I think for me, there's a dialectical aspect to it. I first got interested in it academically, which made me want to go into the defense sector. And then my experiences at the Pentagon made me want to go back and do a PhD just so I could look at CivMil much more deeply. You know, every time I struggled with a policy at DOD or just didn't understand what was happening around me, I would tell myself it was just data for the dissertation. Now I'm lucky enough to work on Civ Mill at the U.S. Army War College and at CSIS. Well, I'm excited to talk with you, and I'm thrilled that I get to ask you all sorts of questions and have an excuse to spend time talking about Civ Mill with you. So I want to start with this question. 
How do you think civil military relations are going in the U.S. today? What are the things you worry about? Well, I'm pretty worried about the strength of the civilian side of the relationship. I know we often start conversations about civil-military relations by discussing the military's role and the military profession, but I think that's actually part of the problem. If civilians are going to control the military, and pay for it, by the way, they need to know a lot more about it than they do, and they need much heftier and healthier institutions than we've got right now. There's a funding imbalance between defense and other priorities. There are civil-military expertise gaps, and partisan polarization is hampering politicians' ability to agree on budgets and policies. So we need to talk way more about the role civilians have to play. Man, I definitely share all those concerns. But I'm also worried about the military side, both at the elite level in terms of accountability for the advice that military leaders have given civilian leaders and the way our military has performed during our recent wars, as well as in terms of the way that members of the military interact or sometimes don't interact with the rest of U.S. society. Yeah, and I've got some concerns about the way the public sometimes worships the military and puts it up on a pedestal instead of really getting to know it. Or the increasing tendency to appoint retired generals to political positions, or for civilian leaders to try and treat the military like a political constituency. Wow, we are not going to have a shortage of topics to discuss. No, we're not. So how are we going to tackle all this? Well, Alice and I want to do a variety of things with the show, and we want to test some of them out today. So this is our lightning round of thank you for your service segments that you can expect to hear in future episodes. Where should we start, Jim? Well, our conversation just now really reminded me of the segment we're calling Nerd Alert. Nerd Alert will be our chance to talk about scholarship on civil military relations. Things like new studies and data and cool stuff researchers we know are working on. For example, in episode five, we're going to talk with Colonel Heidi Urban about the research she's doing on how service members behave online, how they're similar to and different from their peers, whether there are generational divides between younger and older officers, and what service members' political activity online means for the idea of nonpartisanship. Okay, next segment, my favorite war storytellers. In this segment, we're going to highlight a veteran or artist who explores his or her experiences in war through art, writing, or music. To give you a flavor, Alice and I each picked one of our favorite examples of war storytelling, and we each decided on a book or passage we wanted to read. Instead of telling you mine, I'm just going to let my quote give mine away. There was only one catch, and that was Catch-22, which specified that a concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind, or was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask. And as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy, and he'd have to fly more missions. Or would be crazy to fly more missions, and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and he didn't have to. But if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. Yossarian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22, and let out a respectful whistle. That's some catch, that catch-22, he observed. It's the best there is, Dr. Nika agreed. Classic. I was tempted to name All Quiet on the Western Front or Phil Cly's collection of short stories redeployment, too, but I think you can probably learn just about as much about what it's really like to be in the military from reading Catch-22 and other good satire 
as you can for most memoirs or historical fiction. And it's amazing to me how a book set in World War II, written largely during the Korean War and released at the start of Vietnam, still holds up pretty well and captures some of the absurdity of war today, even given our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. For mine, I almost talked about Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. But honestly, I've never read anything better in the war storytelling genre than Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. It's set in and during the Vietnam War, as well as afterwards, as something that the narrator remembers. And it's actually a series of short stories rather than a novel. I first read it in college, and it's one of those books that has stayed in the forefront of my memory. And I read it every 10 years or so. There's so much in it that stops me in my tracks, but I especially love what he writes about how in war, truth is both completely elusive and inescapable. So here's the passage I picked. In any war story, but especially a true one, it's difficult to separate what happened from what seemed to happen. What seems to happen becomes its own happening and has to be told that way. The angles of vision are skewed. When a booby trap explodes, you close your eyes and duck and float outside yourself. When a guy dies, like Kurt Lemon, you look away and then look back for a moment and then look away again. The pictures get jumbled. You tend to miss a lot. And then afterward, when you go to tell about it, there's always that surreal seemingness, which makes the story seem untrue, but which, in fact, represents the hard and exact truth as it seemed. On the show, we're going to ask authors to read and tell us about their own war stories. And we're really excited about who we have lined up to talk to y'all. So please stay tuned for that. Next up, a little segment we're calling Mind the Gap. What's Mind the Gap, Jim? For the Mind the Gap segments, we'll take a look at one of the many gaps there are between civilians and the military. Things like the demographic gap, the difference between who serves in the military and the demographics of the nation, the resource gap, where the military has far more capacity and funding than any other government agency, or the culture gap, where certain aspects of life in the military are just different due to tradition, uniformity, etc. We also have a segment called Under Control, where we'll talk about the civil-military relations of specific defense issues like cyber warfare or Space Force. So, Alice, what are the civil-military relations of cyber warfare? I'm so glad you asked me about my dissertation, Jim. Um, For example, cyber warfare really challenges normal modes of civilian oversight and control. So good oversight requires both expertise and timely knowledge. And it's hard for civilians to develop expertise in the military uses of cyber capabilities because it is so technical and not a visual or often even physical phenomenon. And it's also often highly classified. And cyber operations move so swiftly, it's hard to stay ahead of decisions. Something especially true in situations where algorithms are making a lot of decisions automatic. So it's an open question what civilians in the chain of command do to control the use of cyber force. Fascinating. That also reminds me of another segment, working or shirking. Ah, credit due to Peter Fever. Absolutely. So what's this one about? Well, the concept of working or shirking essentially evaluates how well civilians really control the military and how well the military really follows. So in this segment, we'll examine historical and contemporary instances where the military either follows civilian direction or not so much. Give the people an example. 
Well, for example, we might talk about whether Captain Brett Crozier, who was relieved of command of the USS Theodore Roosevelt nuclear-powered aircraft carrier in April, was actually doing what he was supposed to do by raising concerns about the health of his crew, or whether he was really undermining civilian control. We'll also talk about other things in the news, and we have a lot of great interviews lined up with super smart people. And to make sure we always have fun, our final segment is pop culture. Our friends on the Bombshell podcast do something like this, but ours is thematic. This segment will call your attention specifically to the civil military aspects of shows, movies, music, and memes. We're definitely going to be reviewing the new Space Force series with Steve Carell, for example. Because how can you ignore a show that mocks DOD every step of the way as it tries to implement massive bureaucratic reform? POTUS wants complete space dominance. Boots on the moon by 2024. To that end, the president is creating a new branch, Space Force. <laughs> I'm going to be looking for whether that show picks up on any of the nuance of inter-service rivalry, the absurdity of Pentagon processes, or the civil mill dynamics of being caught between the White House and Congress. And I want to see if it can do all that while still being funny, because life in the Pentagon is often a lot funnier than it looks. For sure. We're also going to have thoughts on the new Top Gun movie when it comes out. And we both have kids, and many of our listeners have kids. And I definitely have thoughts about the role of the military in Arendelle. For one thing, they clearly have remarkably strong standards of civilian control, given the lack of a coup after the monarchy was left to two children who were never seen in public. And that's the sort of hard-hitting analysis you'll get from us on this show. <laughs> that's right. But I'm still a little mad at you, Alice, because you cut my idea for a segment called The Joint Chiefs of Laugh, where we have a contest to see who can make the worst puns, and I always win. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. <laughs> but this leads us to our final thought on segments, which is that we want to hear from you about what you want to hear from us. So we set up a Gmail box at... Tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. If you have an idea for the show or a topic you'd like us to discuss, please leave us a voice memo about your idea. We'll try our best to make it happen, and we might even play your memo on the show. So respectful requests only, please. Okay, so we've been bragging about our guests. Jim and I have been having a blast conducting some of the interviews you're going to hear on the show in the coming months, and we can't wait for you to hear our conversations. We spoke with some stellar guests, like Elliot Ackerman, a novelist, journalist, and recipient of the Silver Star. Listen, if you can't imagine what I went through, that means that the person I was when I left home for war has now been irredeemably altered. So I can never be that person again. Something has happened to me, so I can never be the person I was before I left home. If I can't go back to being the person I was before I left home, because you can't imagine what I went through, it means I never really get to go home. So it's sort of like, I need you to imagine what I went through so that I can kind of go back to being the person I was before I went home. We also spoke with folks like Sean Skelly, who served on the Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Currently, the federal civil service is greatly challenged for several reasons. Demographically, about 20% of the overall workforce could retire within the next couple of years at will. Meanwhile, the youngest part of the workforce, those under 35, are underrepresented by half compared to the greater American economy. So as the federal workforce ages out, there's not enough talent currently in the system prepared to move up in the next decades to become those senior leaders and senior executives. There's a real gap. It's a next generational challenge. 
We talked with the one and only retired Admiral Michael Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think it is something they need to speak to all the time. I think they need to speak to it internally and externally. I think they need to teach this in some ways, blame myself and take some responsibility here. I didn't really understand how deep and how troubling this issue was and how tough it is, meaning the civ mill relationship, because I was one that never studied it. I just showed up in it. Uh, and I showed up at a, obviously a pretty critical time in a very divided country, even back in 2007, across the wars. And I learned as I went, existing in this environment, and I spoke to it frequently when I was the chairman for exactly that reason. So there wasn't any question about where I was and where I thought the rest of the military needed to be, that we needed to stay apolitical. So I think that's that part of it, giving it voice, uh, is absolutely critical. We're also going to ask everyone we talk to what service means to them. Here's Colonel Heidi Urban answering that question. You know, I think most of us can easily endorse the idea, the theory of selflessness, but we tend to gloss over the fact that we may be asked to exhibit and demonstrate selflessness at times when it's least convenient for us to do so or when it comes with extraordinary cost and sacrifice. Alice, have I mentioned that I'm really excited about the show? Because I'm really excited about the show. Me too. And I can't wait to share all these great conversations we've had with amazing people already. And I also can't wait to hear from our listeners. Yeah. And if we do this right, we'll reach all kinds of people and get them thinking about their own role in the civil military relationship, which is something we really hope we can do. We hope we got you interested and that you'll tune in next time. Before we go, Jim and I wanted to offer our thoughts on the Civ Mill aspects of the protests against the murder of George Floyd and how the president and others called for using the U.S. military to control or end those protests. We're not done talking and learning about anti-racism, but here are some of our initial thoughts. We welcome yours as well, so please send us an email. I think that's one of the things that's been hard for me as I watch this is to separate out sort of the rhetoric and emotion from the actual claims. And so on the one hand, you know, as as Lindsey Kahn has pointed out and a n- number of other you know, legal scholars, the, the president has some authorities that he can use domestically to call on active duty forces. But the way they have been described and characterized have not been in any sort of a restrained manner. And so it is hard to separate out the legal authorities to use force in a restrained, disciplined, precise manner from the feeling that it was set up to be a a use of force and pitting U.S. soldiers against civilians, you know, in the battle space to dominate. All of this is, you know, there's a lot of different things going on. There's what may the president do under the law what is the tradition of professionalism and subordination to civilian control? And what does that have to do with the president versus what it has to do with the Congress versus what it has to do with the American people versus what it has to do with the Constitution? Multiple prominent retired general and flag officers, former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff included, 
and one former combatant commander and former secretary of defense have all come out with written statements, all condemning the rhetoric that Secretary Esper and that the president used and condemning the notion of using active duty military forces to suppress, repress, force an end to however you want to put it, these protests. I also think there's a whole lot of people that I work with or know who kind of before were like, yeah, I get it, Alice. You know, I understand why you have concerns about retired senior general and flag officers, you know, wading into political debates. And a lot of those people now are like, listen, this is different, right? This isn't a political issue. This is an ethical issue. This isn't about politics. This is about the Constitution, you know, uh, over at Duck of Minerva, a scholar that you and I both respect tremendously, Carrie Lee, wrote a whole thing that basically said, well, this might be a break glass moment, you know, like break the norm when you need to. And I'm like, oh, I'm still really uncomfortable with that. <laughs> but I'm definitely opening myself up to this debate more than I have in the past. In the past, I've been I've been pretty staunch and drawn a pretty hard line. And now I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe Carrie's right. I I am probably still a little more hardline than you are on this. Um, I don't see evidence that this works. Like, I don't see evidence that this is going to drastically change people's opinions. I much would rather see people focus on calling out the media, calling out Congress. Like, the things that we think work, you hear a lot of people putting their focus on retired generals and many fewer people putting their focus on members of Congress. And maybe they say, oh, it's just a lost cause. There's no hope. But if we're really at the point where we think our political enemies have no hope of being persuaded and we are appealing to the military for legitimacy, right? that is a really bad place. So I completely agree that I'm deeply troubled when folks from either end of the political spectrum turn to military officers, retired or active, to settle the debate. Because, yeah, if, if the military becomes the only institution in the United States that is allowed to have the final word, then, yes, we are much farther down the slippery slope away from democracy than, than we thought we were. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate a little bit. The other perspective I've been thinking about is um, you pointed out that most Americans don't even pay attention when these retired gofos mm -hmm issue these statements. But the people who do pay attention, we know, are other elites, right? So this is elites signaling to each other. And to the extent that the elites in the national security sphere are white men, and that these are some white men who are, you know, old friends and colleagues with the other white men, saying enough, you know, first of all, don't use the U.S. military against American citizens. But second of all, by the way, the reason we're even having this debate is because a police officer or a set of police officers in Minneapolis murdered a black man. And we need to talk about race and we need to talk about injustice. And we really, really don't need to use the military to settle this question. But we do need to talk about it within the military, right? I'm also pivoting a little bit, but there's also been the active duty members of the military speaking out about race issues and racism within the force and saying, you know, let's look at ourselves. Let's look internally. This is happening in American society, and we are also American society, and it's happening here. 
that's the kind of speech that I've been much more comfortable with, even though I think a lot of people would say yeah, that's political or that's wading into politics or that's subtweeting the president. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all of those statements, Twitter threads, speeches, videos that have been posted on Twitter and released to the force have been across the board incredibly powerful. I think with those senior leaders in particular, they have multiple audiences, but they are thinking about their institutions and the problems of racism within them. They understand the broader societal and cultural currents will not leave their force untouched. So it's not the sort of thing we should tell people to avoid. It's part of the danger of saying that we're apolitical as opposed to nonpartisan is that we make people scared to talk about issues that have political impacts when they're actually central issues that you have to deal with in your force. And we need to teach people to talk about that better. But we have seen leaders talking to their forces authentically, and that has the you know follow-on effect of carrying over into the broader culture as well. So, you know, is it political? Well, it has political implications. So be careful about how you talk about it. But so does everything else we do in the military. We are an instrument of policy. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about these hard issues because they're not going away. Civil relations, scholarship in the United States tends to be, not exclusively, but tends to be conducted by a whole lot of white people. And it's much more diverse in terms of sex and gender than it used to be. That's less true of people of color. One thing that I think I underestimated was the degree of racial diversity in the broader field of, of civil military relations when you take it out of just Americanness. Yeah. So I think there is a clear problem in the American civil military relations field where it is it is all white people. Yeah. Um, when you go into the broader and you, you go into comparative and sort of um, some international relations scholars who are not just looking at the U.S. context, mm -hmm. then I think you actually find um, a number of people of color who are contributing to important debates. But that doesn't solve the problem that there, one, isn't much scholarship on race in American civ mill and the implications. And I think that matters when you look at the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There will be an Afri African-American taking over um, as the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, or at least is nominated uh, to become the next Chief of Staff of the Air Force. But right now it is, you know, all white males you look at the pipelines and why we have 40% of our force that is African-American, but 10% or less that are African-American when you get up to the senior ranks. Like, and it's actually la less than 10%. I think the last estimate I saw was 7 or 8%. So mm -hmm. less representative um, than society writ large. So we need to be studying these topics. I'm aware of a few younger scholars or cadets coming out of West Point who are interested in these topics. But to the extent I can, I'm going to try to, you know, encourage people to look at these issues and then encourage people of color to, you know, come join the field. It can be intimidating, I know, when you look at a group and it doesn't look like you yeah. to want to be a part of it. This is a problem in the national security field in the United States in general. You know, I've I've sat at the Pentagon trying to get interns who weren't just male and white. And, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, is it the pipeline? Is it, you know, where are we being discriminatory, basically? Like, where is implicit bias 
you know, how is our implicit bias contributing to this? Like, how do we catch this? How do we stop it? How do we reverse it? And that's, it's just, it's a thing we have to work on all the time. So I just think that those of us who have achieved some stability and a nice anchor in our career, the more we can, you know, turn around and, and help, help everyone coming up, the, the better off the country will be. Thank You for Your Service is brought to you by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the show out to more people. You should also follow both of us and the show on Twitter. Alice is at A-H-F-B-C. And Jim is at Jim Goldie. And the show is at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast. And don't forget to let us know what civil military relations topics interest you and what you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. Our email is tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Thank You for Your Service. We'll see you next time.